So a, a number of years ago, I had read in uh, online or in the newspaper an incredible story. Uh, out in Vancouver, there's a beautiful park in Vancouver. I was there on my honeymoon, just an incredibly beautiful park. In this park in Vancouver, um, there was a person who was hitchhiking on the side of the road. And this couple, for whatever reason, decided they were going to stop and pick up this hitchhiker, uh, much to their parents' chagrin, I'm sure, right? And for whatever reason, they decided to do this, and they pulled over and they picked up this hitchhiker, uh, and this man got into the back seat of their car, and as they turned around to ask him where he needed to go, they were in for the surprise of their life. It was Bono, the lead singer of U2, who had been out for a bike ride and had come into some trouble on his bike and uh, needed to get home. And so this couple who picked up Bono on the side of the road ended up backstage at a U2 concert later that night. Is this incredible? This is why you should never listen to your parents, right? That's not at all the point of this. And I need to say this, so I'm on the record. I'm also not advocating for picking up hitchhikers. I'm not necessarily against it, but I'm not taking a stand on it, like a good politician, right? But the point of the story being, in essence, that old adage that we've all learned, you can't judge a book by its cover, or maybe you shouldn't judge something by the circumstance. The scriptures have a phrase for this or a word for this. It's what's called showing partiality or showing favoritism. And in the original language, the word actually means making a judgment on the basis of someone's face. So you know the idea of taking something at face value? It really comes from this biblical word. And it's a Hebrew word, and there was no Greek word for it. So when James is writing, he, in essence, pulls Greek words together to make a word that almost doesn't exist elsewhere on the basis of this Hebrew or this Jewish reality of judging people based upon their appearance. And we understand that when we judge people based upon their appearance, which is not a new reality, but an ancient reality that continues to plague us as a society and as a church today, we not only favor one group of people, but we demean and dismiss and in some ways disdain a whole group of other people. And for James, this is a huge problem because it was a huge problem to Jesus. And it was a huge problem to Jesus because it's a huge problem to God. And James is now, as he turns in his sermon that we call the book of James, to begin getting practical and addressing situations uh, that are existing in this diaspora group of Jewish Christians, he's going to tackle this one first. So, James chapter 2, verse 1. This is what James writes. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Must not literally face judge. 
Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Now, what James is doing here is what lots of good preachers do. He's creating a hypothetical. This has not necessarily happened in their midst, but there are issues like this, at least, that are happening or probably happening. And so James is making a pretty drastic illustration to get at a universal point. How do we know it's drastic? Because the picture of the rich man that James paints is someone who's super rich. And the picture of a poor man that James paints is someone who, in essence, is maybe homeless, right? The idea being having absolutely nothing. Now, one of the questions that was submitted on the basis of this passage, and thanks for your questions, they're incredibly profound questions, lots of great questions, was, so who who are the poor and who are the rich? So, again, this is hypothetical, right? This first illustration here is completely hypothetical. It has nothing to do with actual people. But we remember that the group that James is writing to is probably largely poor. Not poor like this person is poor, who's destitute and poor, but economically on the scale of things, uh, they would be underprivileged and probably oppressed. Now, there might be some in their midst who are wealthy, uh, and we kind of get to that in other places in James, where James is poking at them uh, just a little bit as well. Um, So, in essence, understanding who the, the receivers of this message are, the audience, the, the people that James is writing to, and understanding their poverty uh, has little, little help in us understanding this passage other than to shake our heads and be like, I can't understand how you, of all people, are acting like this. And James wants you to have that opinion, and the Holy Spirit wants us to have that opinion because what we'll find out is, uh, yeah, we're just like them. Right? Unfortunately. So, verse 2 again. Into the meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Uh, If you show special attention to a man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on on the floor by my feet. The the original language there actually is "Sit, sit beneath or under my footstool. Right, so it's almost like below the floor. Like it's, you know, like imagine some dude sitting at a chair or a throne or something with his feet up on an ottoman and you get to sit right next to those, right? It's not a place of privilege. Uh, verse 4, have, not, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We'll see a little bit later that this is verse 4. James is once again using the the word that speaks of being double-minded. You're making a double-minded judgment on these people. Verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law of lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. 
For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now, it gets complicated in that section. And James is using an oft-used illustration basically to say, hey, you can't say you're a law keeper because you keep this section, but don't keep this other section. So murder, adultery, how does this all germane to the situation? It's really not. He's just making a point to say, just because you didn't do one thing doesn't mean you're a law keeper. Does that make sense? Uh, Verse 12, so speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says, show no partiality. Well, I think the best way that we can jump into this and try to make sense of what James is after here is by asking three questions. Uh, And questions often help us uh, understand what a passage of Scripture is all about. The first question that, that I think we need to answer is, why? Why do we tend to be people who do show partiality? Why do we tend to be people who do judge people by their face or their circumstances? And then the second question is another why question. Why should we not? Why should we be impartial? What reasons does James give us? And then the third question, the really significant question is, okay, but how? How do I grow in being impartial? Which is really what James is driving at here. He's not expecting perfection. He's expecting an upward trajectory in growth. So let's try to answer those three questions over the next uh, little bit of time together. First question, why? Why do do, do human beings tend to be people who show partiality or favoritism? And there's a myriad of reasons for this. uh, And we need not just look into Scripture to understand them. We can look into the history of society. Hate and evil and disdain, and and ethnic supremacy, and all of these things, fear that keeps us from other people. All of these things are very real, and I do not mean to minimize them in any way. They're just not the subject that James is after in this particular section. James is after something that uh, appears to be a little bit more passive in ourselves, but is actually quite deadly in how... We live. See, many of us will look at ourselves and say, I don't hate other people, and therefore I'm not racist or classist or sexist or anything else. And in a sense, what you're saying is true, but in a sense, what you're saying is actually working to deceive yourself. Because what's happening in our partiality or our bias or our favoritism is in essence not happening out the front door of hatred. It's happening out the front door of disinterest. Of this really has no bearing on me, or what use is this for me? And this is exactly what James wants to address in this moment. See, for James, this is not about rich people looking down on poor people because they're, they're, they're hateful towards them. Uh, 
but it has to do with Christians and the church in particular, in this case, looking down on poor people, I would suggest to you, because they're of little use to them. Does this make sense? So for James, the whole section is rooted in this idea of glory. We'll talk about this as we go along. But James introduces as we start the idea of the Lord Jesus Christ of glory. It's a very interesting phrase. The, the NIV, which we read from, puts glory in the front as another adjective of Jesus, but that's probably not really a great translation. James is giving this incredible picture of who Jesus is. He's the Lord. That means he's the ruler of all things. He's the mighty one. But kurios, the Greek word for Lord, is also the, word that the, the Greek word that's used to translate the name of God. And so he's, James is referring to the divinity of Jesus. Then by giving in the name Christ, that's, remember we talk about this, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's a title. He's the Messiah. He's the one sent by God to restore and redeem all things. This is who he is. And he says, this is the Jesus Christ, literally in the original language, of the glory. Meaning, the, the representation of the glory of God. That's a little different than just calling him the glorious Lord, right? The idea being the, the representation of the full glory of God. Now, why give this big picture of who Jesus is at the beginning? Because that's going to be a key to helping us understand this whole section for us that really humanity is after glory. And so we pursue power and influence and status, oftentimes through people who by our association with them can give us power and influence and status. This is why, incidentally, James leads this whole section in by reminding us at the end of chapter 1 that pure religion, pure and unpolluted religion, cares for who? Orphans and widows. Now, why does he pick those two people out? Wouldn't pure religion care for a lot more than that? Of course it would. He picks those two out because societally at that time, those two groups of people were utterly helpless in a male-dominated society. And therefore, they could offer you nothing. There was no quid pro quo. You were getting nothing from your investment in them. And James is saying, that's pure gospel embodiment. And now, right on the heels of that, he jumps in and says, but don't show favoritism. Don't prioritize the rich. Well, why would you prioritize the rich? Because they can do something for you. They can give you influence or power or clout. They can give the church maybe stability or, or uh, the means to, to move forward. There's all kinds of pragmatic ways that creep into our mind that make this kind of thing happen. But what I want to suggest to you is though he's obviously talking about poor and rich in a financial way here, the word rich is really a placeholder. It really has a broader sense than that in the whole scheme of things. It really, to be rich in estimation, and you look at someone and say they're rich, what you're really saying about them is they're higher than you on the pecking order of society, right? <laughs> and so that can come through financial means and wealth for, certainly, for certainty. It can also come on the spiritual side of things, right? 
Or it can come on the popularity or status sides of things. It can come in the power, the positions of power side of things. And we always, as human beings, tend towards those kind of things so that we can begin to meet some of the inner desires of our soul. We've talked about this a lot here at Hope. That At the core of us, there are three things that we're desiring deeply at some level. Significance, acceptance, and security. And one of the means we try to accomplish them is through our relationships and associations. And so we look for people who can help us accomplish that. And James is cutting that right at the knees. Now listen, we need to hear this. James is not suggesting that you shouldn't be friends with people who are wealthy, who are, who are farther along in their spiritual journey than you, who happen to hold a position of power. That's not the point at all. It's that you shouldn't dismiss other people because they're not in those places. Does this make sense? And so James is telling us, be very careful and look at the why you're doing this. And then James, in essence, to poke a giant hole right in the middle of this whole basis of finding glory, he basically says, and oh, by the way, aren't the rich the people who are dragging you into court? Now that word drag, we've heard before in chapter one. Remember? The bait, you're baited and dragged away. Remember? By our desires. The same word for dragging. They're the ones dragging you away. And aren't they the ones who blaspheme the Lord? The idea there is kind of like, looking down on you because of your, of your faith and, and calling Jesus of no worth. Why does James bring up those situations? Because it, it seems like that doesn't relate directly to this because this rich hypothetical person has come into their regular worship gathering. He's shown up either as a visitor or a new convert or something like that. Well, James is just alerting us to the human condition. Does this make sense that in the same way that we are, and I'm just going to use blunt words here, in the same way that we are trying to use people to accomplish things for ourselves, other people are using you to accomplish things for themselves. Does this make sense? James is like, don't you see it? Why are they pulling you into court and belittling you and all of these things? To gain influence, to sustain power, all the same stuff is going on. He's saying, get off that rat race. It's a broken system. James is speaking to the church and saying, we can't live that way. So, second question, so why? Why pursue partiality? And Again, maybe this is an obvious answer to you. But James gives us three things, and I think it's really important for us to to settle in here and and understand James's logic. The first thing that James, first reason James gives is because God is impartial. Is that that we're called to be impartial people who don't judge by the face, who don't seek power through relationship, because God is impartial. Now remember, when James is writing this, he's writing to a Jewish audience. 
people who would have known the Torah, people who would have known the Old Testament stories and the Scriptures, they would have known this characteristic about God, that He is impartial, because it's literally littered throughout the entire Old Testament. It shows up everywhere, specifically in the, 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 the central stories of the, of the Exodus, which is the, the defining story of Israel that gave them the identity of who they were. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10, perhaps this is in their minds. It certainly is in James' mind. This is what Moses writes. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Where have we heard that? and loves the foreigner residing amongst you, giving them food and clothing. Interesting to note that when you hear about God being a God to the fatherless and a God to the the widows, you often will hear this idea uh, of foreign or people who have come into the country who are foreigners because they would have had the same social status as those people, completely helpless, having nothing to offer you. Why doesn't James speak of them here? Because the Israelites were the foreigners, right? They were the ones who were scattered and off. So he's not dismissing that truth as unimportant. It's just not particularly germane to the situation. They would have understood that James isn't coming out of nowhere with this reality. That God at his core is impartial. And then they would have understood exactly what James was saying in verse 1 when he speaks of Jesus as he does. The Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. If that is who God is, a father to the fatherless and to the widows and to to the, the foreign residents who come into the land, then Jesus, who is, they have heard and James knows through Jesus' teaching, the full embodiment of the glory of God, and James once again calling on this, then who was Jesus and what did he do? Well, Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2, and I quote Paul here even though uh, he writes this much later than James writes his letter, because most people believe that this section of Philippians chapter 2 is actually Paul just quoting a very early hymn or creed of the church. This was something people would have said all the time when they gather. Perhaps you've heard this before. This is speaking of Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used, listen to this, to his own advantage. He didn't try to use it to hold on to power or gain influence. Instead, he made himself nothing. The embodiment of the impartiality of God. The glory of God on display. By taking the very nature of Of a rich person with gold rings? No. Of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance of a man as if this wasn't enough, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Paul goes on to write, as this hymn goes on to say, that because of this, the Father has, has lifted Jesus up to a glorified state, made Him Lord over all things, given Him that title, the Lord Jesus Christ.
Christ. You see what Paul is, or excuse me, what James is saying here to his readers? He's saying, listen, if you are going to be a Christian, if the gospel is central to who you are, then whether you are Jewish in your ancestry or new to Jesus in this whole thing, you can't escape the reality of the impartiality of God. And so in some sense, that's who we're called to be. But James doesn't stop there. He goes even deeper. The second reason that James gives for being impartial is, and we said all along, James loves to be blunt. So the second reason is, because you're poor. Right? James says, listen, has not God chosen those who are poor to inherit the kingdom of God? Now, some people will take this as a broad theological statement, and that may be so. But James is not writing a book of theology. He's preaching a sermon to a particular group of people. So who are the people who God has chosen? Is this a statement about all of history? It certainly could be. That's not what James is thinking. He's talking to them. They're the people. They're the ones who have believed. They're the ones who God has accepted. And he has a name for them. Poor. And he says it even differently. Poor, he says, in the eyes of the world. In other words, people have made a judgment of you. And their judgment is, you're poor. Incredible. I love James. He gets right after it. What James is doing here is he's beginning to play on the word poor in the same way that Jesus does. Remember, Jesus is the teacher. James is the preacher, right? And so Jesus does does the same thing here. This idea of poor meaning certainly financially poor, but it also has this idea of being spiritually poor or poor in spirit, as Jesus would like to say. Spiritually bankrupt. Having nothing in the the spiritual account, right? I think here, and and many people believe this, that James is riffing on Jesus' statements in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James is not inventing something new here. He's quoting Jesus and reminding them of their identity. Who they are. We need to ask an important question. Can only poor people become heirs of the kingdom of God? And my answer is yes and no. Here's what I mean. You must be poor in spirit to inherit the kingdom of God. There is no other way. Because if you are presenting a case on the basis of your wealth in the spiritual bank account that you have, your church attendance, your Bible reading plan, your acts of holiness, even as good as they may be, you will never have the balance in that account that buys you a ticket to the kingdom of God. Does this make sense? This is clear throughout the entire Scriptures. I'm not telling you something you don't already know. So unless and until you are willing to do an honest look at who you are and come to the agreement with James and Jesus that in the eyes of the world, you are poor, 
you will not be ready to embrace the gift that Jesus offers you. Because you will be basing your trust on other things. Now, why does James associate this with financially poor as well? Here's what I think. It is much easier for someone who is financially poor to come to the conclusion that they are spiritually poor than someone who is materially wealthy. I'm not inventing this either. Guess who taught this? Jesus, right? Said something like this, right? It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Is he saying rich people need not apply? Of course not. What he's talking about is unless and until you realize that you are in need, you cannot respond to the gospel. And people who have lived their whole life without need materially are less inclined to be aware of spiritual need. That's what Jesus is saying here. So James, again, we say this all to say, James is not prioritizing poor people over rich people. He's simply reminding the whole church that their identity is people who are poor in spirit. Does this make sense? And this identity becomes central. Now what's fascinating is when James gives this hypothetical of the rich man and the poor man that come into the assembly, he says of the poor man that he comes in with filthy clothing. Do you get that? Or some translations say shabby clothing. That word shabby or filthy, it's not a new word for James. He used it in chapter 1. It's the same word that's translated in chapter 1, moral filth. When James says, put off all your moral filth, it's the word that we said could sometimes be translated earwax. Remember? What is James doing? Remember I talked to James, he's very good with his words. He's playing on words like a good preacher. He's saying, they're wearing shabby clothes just like you do. Does it make sense? You're wearing the shabby clothes of spirituality. They're wearing the shabby clothes of this world. All the more reason why you should embrace them. This is who you are. James, second reason. (laughs) You're poor. And the third reason James gives is um, a classic, classic answer, right? You could say it like this, because God said so. Or, as James says, because the law says so. James says the the royal law tells you to, and therefore you should be impartial. Now you're saying, wait a minute, law. Whoa, 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 law. I'm already getting frustrated with James because he keeps talking about law. And I've been part of Hope Alliance long enough to know that we talk about grace and gospel. And those two things seem to be diametrically opposed. Are you telling me that I have to obey the law? Yes. That's exactly what James is telling you. But listen to how he says it. He says, the royal law. But what on earth does he mean by this? Is he talking about the whole Old Testament law, all of those things? Of course not. They're fulfilled in Jesus. A large portion of the Old Testament law has find its full fulfillment in Jesus. It's why we don't do sacrifices. It's why we don't do a lot of the ceremonial rites and, and things that happen. It's why there's not a temple and things like that in, in, in these days. But the moral reality of the Old Testament law has in fact by Jesus been made a little bit more robust. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? 
Jesus is saying things like, hey, you used to hear them say, don't murder, but here's what I say to you. If you, if you look on your brother in hatred, you've already murdered them. Used to say, it used to say you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even look on another man's wife and lust, you've... But Jesus is actually taking the moral law and he's actually lifted it up. He's actually more robust. James is referring to that. He's calling that the royal law. Because what does he call Jesus? The Lord and King in verse 1, right? But he's not talking about all the specifics of it. He's talking about a very particular thing that Jesus said. You remember when the teachers came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what is the greatest of all the laws? Remember what Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Above this there is nothing, right? And then he said, and the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. In these two things, Jesus said, the whole law is summed up. What is the royal law of Jesus that James is referencing? Those two things. In particular, the second part. James is saying, if you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, and you haven't thought deeply about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, then you haven't really understood what the gospel is. Because the whole basis of the gospel is a Jesus who has loved you as his neighbor and lowered himself to the point of meeting you where you were at. James says, look, there's a couple different ways you can live. You can just be Jewish and live under the old law. And if you're going to do that, then you're going to be judged by all of those things. And you better get them all right. Because one doesn't stand apart from the other, right? Or you can live under this law. He calls it the law of liberty, right? Why? Because Jesus has embodied it. In so doing, he set us free. He's loved us like his neighbor. And you can find freedom. In essence, Jesus or James is saying on the basis of Jesus' teaching, listen, you are a new creation. Remember James chapter 1? We've been born anew, or born from above by God. And it's our only hope in the midst of our external and internal trials. And so we are new creation. And therefore, James is saying, we should live a new creation life. Now, did you get the news yesterday that Tom Brady retired? Anyone else be like, thank it's, it's time, right? Thank goodness. Now, here's the great news, is that Tom Brady is exactly one year older than me, so I've only got to make it one more year and then retire. That doesn't work, right? Okay, anyway. Tom Brady, of course, famously, played for the New England Patriots for forever. And then he went to Tampa Bay. And I am not a huge Tom Brady fan. I'm not a Patriots fan. Therefore, I'm not a Tampa Bay fan. That's the way it goes when you're a bitter Eagles fan who just hates everyone because they win and you don't. Uh, that's kind of against the whole sermon today, isn't it? He's not so... Pray for me. My point being, when Tom Brady goes to the Buccaneers and it's time to suit up for the game, he doesn't put on a Patriots jersey, does he? He put on a Buccaneers jersey. James is saying, you're not that way anymore. 
Don't put that jersey on anymore. Put on the jersey that gives life. Love your neighbor as yourself. James says, why do we do it? Because God is impartial. Because we are poor. And because the royal law compels us to. But it brings us to the most important question. How? And you should not be surprised by my answer. James has already laid out the process for us at the end of chapter 1. You hear the Gospel, you welcome the Gospel, and you do the Gospel. And isn't it fascinating in these three examples or three reasons for why we should be impartial, James has actually given us one in each category. Did you notice this? Because James is preaching a sermon. How do you grow in impartiality? Because if you're sitting here and you're being honest at any level, you're saying, oh boy, I'm super guilty of this. That's what it means to be human. It's important that you recognize that. How do you grow in this? The first way is that you hear the gospel. The gospel of our impartial God. Who in evidence of His glory of who He actually is, lowers Himself to meet us in our greatest need. Hear it. But it's not enough to just hear it. James says you've got to welcome it in. How do you welcome it in? By having an honest assessment of who you are. That you are poor. It's just like James chapter 1 when James says, look deeply into the mirror, right? Don't just look and forget. And guess what happens when we look in the mirror? We get an interesting assessment that doesn't seem to meet, right? You are poor. Honest assessment. And yet, James says, you are rich in Christ. You're a foreigner, and yet, James says, you are an heir of the kingdom of God. Not just a participant, an heir. If you soak deeply in that identity, it begins to change who you are. But you can't stop there and welcome it in. A bigger thing that James is asking us to do is to look for glory in the right place. Not in what you can get from people and systems of this world to find an identity. Instead, looking to the one who is the glory of God to find your identity. That you are so loved that he was willing to set aside the comforts of heaven in order that you would have a way to sit at the table with Him. That Jesus doesn't offer you a seat at His feet, but a chair at the table. This is who you are. And, James calls us to boast in mercy. 
This last little verse is fascinating, isn't it? Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word triumphs is not a very good translation. It's not like a military or battle that's going on. It actually, the word is over exalts. Or more joy in mercy than in judgment. It is that when we are welcoming in the gospel, we are declaring to ourselves, there is greater joy in receiving the mercy of God as a poor and broken person than there is in looking in judgment on someone that we perceive to be less socially or in the pecking order of the world than we are. Because on that pecking order, there's always people ahead of you. But in God's kingdom, he welcomes everyone equally. And so, after you've heard the gospel, and after you've welcomed it in, you have to do it. What does James say? Speak and act as those who are under the law of liberty. Right? He doesn't say, sit there and be happy about it. He says, speak and act. Do something about it. In faith, start to live on the basis of this. And see how it brings change. The church is called to be the physical and visible and tangible representation of the kingdom of God to an on-looking world. They are meant to look at the church and say, this is what God is doing in the world. This is His gospel in living color. This is what's happening in the world. How can it be then that in the church there is any kind of favoritism? Because it is not that way with God. Our God is impartial. He shows us that we are poor. And by His royal law, He liberates us and welcomes us to join in His mission of bringing His kingdom to bear in this world. So whether someone is poor, whether they are young or old, whether they are intellectually inferior, whether they are of the same color skin, whether they have the same political affiliations as you, in the family of God, everyone sits at a chair at the table. Can I pray with you?